So I was in Nauru 2012 to 2014, and I think that would have been 2018. So at that point, like it was a tragedy for me looking at it because I worked with a lot of teenage boys that had arrived by themselves as teenagers without a parent or a guardian. So they were, you know, unaccompanied minors stuck there. But the real tragedy for me in that 2018 time is that none of them were children anymore. You know, they had all lost the rest of their childhood to that place. This is Down to Earth Conversations, where we hear from ordinary people who are helping to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. Kia ora, welcome to another episode of Down to Earth Conversations. As some of you will have seen, I delayed this episode by a week just to give myself some space as it's been a bit crazy of late. And I figure we can't really help to bring a bit of heaven down to earth if we run ourselves into the ground, can we? But we're back and I'm super pumped to bring you this episode. James Harris is passionate about people and he's given his life to helping those less privileged than himself. This has led him around the world to a number of places that many of us would never even dream of going. We talk about his passion for youth work, justice and doing good in the world and we hear how this is outworked while living and working in Nauru uh, with those in Australian detention centres, influencing the Prime Minister of New Zealand while working for World Vision New Zealand and now serving youth in the outback of the land we now call Australia. Uh, It's a bit of a longer conversation, so I'm just going to jump straight into it. This conversation blew my mind and melted my heart. This is episode 33 of Down to Earth Conversations. Here's James Harris. I'm here today with James Harris. Kia ora, James. Yeah, kia ora, Andy. It's cool to be on the on the podcast. For those who don't know you, do you want to just tell us a little bit about who you are, um, where you're from, where you are now, so we can get to know you a bit? Yeah, sure. So, uh, yeah, I'm a proud West Aucklander. Um, so West Auckland is um, very much home, but um, yeah, God and the pursuit of justice has sort of taken me all over the place uh since putting you know since growing up in west auckland so currently i'm based in western australia and a remote aboriginal community with my wife yeah i it's hard to explain who am i what am i yeah um <laughs> that's what i just asked you i just asked you to unpack your life in like 30 seconds so it's all good yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um One of the big things that I am super passionate about is young people. So I've done uh, a whole load of youth work over the years. Uh, That's what I'm doing now. So I also do uh, a little bit of youth work training with uh, a thing called youthwork.io. But um, yeah, have really been involved with a whole lot around uh, justice throughout the years. So as I've delved deeper into my Christian faith, I feel like I've been pushed further towards the pursuit of um, justice, further towards um, friendship with people that are on the margins. And um, while I'm there, have seen the structures that are affecting those people and then really gone, actually, we need to be pushing for um, for more justice alongside these people. So, yeah, um, yeah that's sort of um, yeah, my cool. jam, I guess. Yeah, and, and like you said, you grew up in West Auckland. What was it that kind of gave you that first taste of there's this other world out there or there's this 
there are these people that need people to to walk with them, you know, to fight for them, to fight with them. Mm. Um, what, what was it that yeah. sort of triggered that passion for you? Yeah, there's there's a whole range of stuff. It's funny looking back uh, growing up and, you know, growing up in West Auckland, like I had a really, um, I feel like I still have like a really privileged life, but looking at um, so many of my friends and people around me, like I remember just going, like there's this kid at school that we used to play soccer with that had like bullet holes in the back of his legs. Like, and he'd come as a refugee and wow. everyone played soccer with him at lunchtime. And at the time I didn't think much of it. And yeah. then as an adult, I was like working with refugees and I was like, holy shit. You know, like, yeah. I don't know. There were just things that didn't, I was like, they didn't hit me at the time, but um, looking back on it, I'm like, Oh, there was, there was all the stuff that I didn't have the eyes to see, I guess yeah. as a 12 or 13 year old. Um, but, uh, there are, there are a few things that really sort of, um, open my eyes, I guess. And I do feel that, um, a part of it was like God doing the work in me. Cause really as a teenager, um, I was just an average teenager. I was really interested in music. Like I loved music. Um, and so I think that was a big part of it that, um, I was really into to punk and hardcore and so on on a Sunday, I'd be going to church and hearing sermons about, um, you know, you're just your, your average sermon. But at the same time, like I remember listening to bands. I was like, I would have been 13 when the US invaded Iraq. Right. And so at church, as a 13-year-old, as a at church would be, you know, at Sunday school still getting whatever they do for 13-year-olds sort of. Yeah. Um, Sunday school stories, but then I'd be reading the liner notes of bands that were talking about um, the war in Iraq, about the history of um, of that, which I didn't fully grasp at the time, yeah. but it made me go, oh, there's there's more going on in the world. So I actually do um, do credit punk music in some ways for yeah. for opening my eyes, but it wasn't until later on as a teenager that those things really converged. And I think that, um, that heart for God and the heart for justice going, Oh, these, these are, these are one. Yeah. Um, and that really becoming like a lifelong trajectory for me. So that's fascinating about the music side of things. Cause, um, you know, a big part of some of the episodes that I've, I've been on already are, are talking about artists and, you know, the, the power that there is mm. in art to shape lives and, um, you know, to hear these that there's these people who put this stuff out there, I guess just their emotions and what they were feeling, to know that that impacted yeah. some little teenager on the other side of the world, you know, um, that's pretty totally. Pretty major. And the the interesting thing with it, I've actually been trying to unpack this recently because um, I've felt challenged to listen to more Christian music, and um. I mostly don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and a part of it, um, a part of it was um, like listening to like punk and hardcore, all this heavy music that was like, we're talking about what's actually going on in the world. You know, we're having like a really serious conversation about what is my place um, in the world and what am I going to do about all this stuff? But then I was like, oh, but I'm listening to all these like secular bands, so I should listen to some Christian ripoffs of the same thing, yeah. essentially. <laughs> yeah. And they just said the same thing I was hearing at church on a Sunday. Yeah. 
you know, so I was drawn, I, I loved going to church on a Sunday. Like what was being said wasn't bad, but then um, I'd go to a hardcore show on a Friday night or a Saturday night and I'd be challenged about my my consumer habits. You know, I would yeah. be challenged about where my shoes had come from. Um, I'd be challenged about my diet and the impact of it on the planet. All these things that I had never once heard of really in church. Um, and more, like more and more now, I think people are having the justice conversation. I think that's really yeah. good. Um, but f- for me, the thing that brought those together really was um, was the two worlds, was like yeah. punk and hardcore and, um, and church. But the thing that sort of brought them together was at – my youth, my youth group was amazing. It was a really, really good youth group. And um, we started talking a lot about, you know, the kingdom of God and the, the whole it's already but not yet. So, you know, in the kingdom, there's no sickness. So let's pray for healing. And if someone gets healed, that's awesome. Like, praise God. But if he doesn't, if that doesn't happen, it's all right. The kingdom's not yet. You know, it's not your faith. It's not your faith is lacking. Like, I think it was a really solid Yep. theology around healing but me and a bunch of the other young people that were like listening to punk music starting to go well there's a big w- wide world out there going well in the kingdom there's no poverty yep. and like we're not just going to pray it away yeah you know like we got to do something about it um and so i think the the solid kingdom theology that in that church was mostly being talked about in terms of healing and things like that mm. really started, you know, when I started actually looking at what's, what was going on in the world and going, well, I'm, yeah, I'm not going to pray the poverty away. Yeah. Um, led me to go, okay, well, um, what am I going to do about it? And so I think that really sent me down a path. And I think, so I, I sort of fell into youth work um, and I really love youth work. I think I'll be, a youth worker in some form for the rest of my life. And the thing I found with youth work is, which I think is really important to me is that thing of, okay, well um, it's one thing to do something for some people, for people say, you know, with uh, getting my hands dirty about poverty, it's like, okay, well let's, um, you know, let's raise some money to send to people or, um, you know, let's look at the macro structures that are affecting people, all those sorts of things. But I think you can still do that um, from behind a pretty comfy white picket fence and never have to interact with anyone that's actually facing any of those issues. Um, So I think that youth work has been really, really good for me in terms of putting me on the front line in a a micro sense and interacting with those people. So, Mm. um, yeah, I think it's important. It's become important for me to find what's my micro, you know, what am I doing in my day to day interacting with people on a smaller level? And then what's the macro stuff that I can impact as well. So to me, like youth work is an act of justice as well. Yeah. I guess you've got a whole bunch of youth who have, uh, well, youth have issues going on for them just like the rest of us. Uh, but having someone that they mm. can know and trust and, you know, talk to about these things and um, you know I know even from uh, I'm a chair of the board at, the, at my kids school and just learning mm. about some of the the situations that some of these kids come from it's just 
different to what I grew up with. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah. it's not a world that I think should ever exist, and yet it does. And so, yeah. Um, so yeah, I just want to toe talk with that 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 youth work is such an amazing gift to to those young people, that um, people to be with them and hear them and and um, and it really does give you that ear to the ground on actually some real life conversations that are happening because they're not yet totally, totally. so set in their ways that actually this is how life is you know that they're, they're going hey this is this is how life is and what the hell you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. why is it like that and what can we what can we do about yeah. that and it shouldn't be like this and yeah so yeah so that's really cool um so I mean you you started obviously volunteering and things but then ended up working in that kind of space what was the what was the biggest thing that uh, from those early days that that you feel I guess encouraged you to to know that this was your place I I think once I started on that path there there are so many I guess deeply held values that I have that um, that come from my faith uh, and are really anchored in my faith um, around justice, um, around community, around uh, how I spend my time, how I spend my energy, all those things. Like I think I do have a really strong, um, a strong set of values that come from my faith. And I have, I guess, my wife that she is, the same values. And so for me, so it's, it's interesting, like as I unpack it, like there's, there's all the stuff that comes from my faith and then there's an approach to life, I guess that I've learned growing up around punk and hardcore. Like the whole thing with that is like, why sign to a record label when you can do it all yourself? Yeah. You know, when I was, um, like the whole kind of DIY, like stick it to the man yep. ethic. Um, and a big part of that is just like knowing what you believe in and backing yourself. Yeah. And so I feel like at quite a young age, I was able to go, oh, this, like, this is what I really believe in. This is what I value. And, um, and then just like backing that yeah. God has a place for me in that. Cool. You know, so it's less, it's been less about, um, like, I guess the job or what I have been doing, but I've always gone, no matter what, for me and for everyone, I think God has a place. I know that God has a place for them in his kingdom. And I know that that kingdom looks like the world, the way it ought to be. And in that kingdom, there's no injustice. You know, that's not, it's not ought to be like that. So sort of by extension, everyone has a place yeah. um, in, in making the world right and working towards the world the way it ought to be. And so um, for me, it was sort of a yeah, real trust in God, but also this weird kind of DIY, well, if no one else is going to do it, I'm going to make it happen sort of attitude. Yeah, cool. Um, yeah, it worked in – I basically fell into youth work straight out of school. So yeah. um, I'm 30 now, so it's been – yeah, about sort of the last 12 years of either youth work or um, like my work with World Vision, the work in Nauru, like a bunch of um, either people-facing or justice-oriented work. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, so you mentioned those other roles. When I uh, I knew of you through your family, um, but when I first properly met you was a few years mm. ago, and you you were working for World Vision at the time, but you'd just come back from Nauru. Yeah, um, yeah. And first of all, like, what were you doing there? <laughs> like, yeah. It's it's not a place that most of us go. Hey, let's go to Nauru. You know. Yeah. But obviously, there was something that drew you there. Mm. Yeah. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about that and then what it was that you got up to over there? Yeah, so the the background context is that Australia was having people arrive by boat that didn't have visas uh, that were claiming asylum. So there were people that were saying, hey, we're refugees and we need your protection. And Australia didn't like people coming by boat. So they said, if you arrive by boat, we're going to send you to two other countries, so to Papua New Guinea, to a small little island called Manus Island, and uh, to Nauru, which is the smallest republic besides the Vatican. So it's wow. the whole country is 21 square kilometres. It's this um, tiny, it takes like like 16 minutes to drive around it. I used to walk the whole country on my day off. Um, <laughs> and yeah. yeah, so it's this tiny little, you know, it's a half marathon to to run around the whole country. Um, but uh, so Australia said, we're going to send you to these other countries where you'll be processed, uh, to, whether you're a refugee or not, and you're going to be detained during that time. And uh, after that, you're going to be sent to a third country and you're never going to make it to Australia. So um, I, as this little like Kiwi boy from West Auckland, I, so my wife's Australian, we're living in Melbourne together, about to get married. And my friend was working for the Salvation Army and said, hey, I've been, we're just catching up. She said, oh, I've been offered to be seconded to this place. She's another Kiwi, same age as me, going, I have no idea, like, what it'll be like. I wish I could go, but she couldn't because she had, like, prior commitments. And so she was explaining, she's almost grieving it with me, like, I wish I could yeah. go and be a part of this thing. And I was like, could I go? And she was like, I could send a couple emails. Like, I didn't work for the Salvation Army. Yeah. And the Salvation Army had got the welfare contract. Right. So the government passed the law on the 12th of August and a people arrived on the 13th of September, so a month later. Wow. And I arrived a month after that. So it was all super, super rushed. And I was about to get married and went there on a three-week contract. They were like, could you just come for three weeks? We just need bodies on the ground, people helping yeah. out. And I got there and I remember um, emailing my wife. It would actually be interesting to go find the email yeah, um, just for myself. Uh, and I was just like, we need to be here. Yeah. I don't know like how it's going to work, but like we need to be here. And so, um, yeah, so, so literally I, then they offered oh, for me to come back. I went back. For eight, they said, "How long could you come for?" I was like, "Well, I'm getting married in twelve weeks, so I could come for eight. And then, yep. while I was there, they said, "Could you come back permanently?" And I was like, "Could you hire my wife as well?" <laughs> and, yeah. um, so that ended up being um, like our honeymoon, essentially, as we spent um, yeah two wow. years there working with refugees who are um, and asylum seekers being held in detention. So the 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 whole thing was a really um, really really horrific yeah. um to be honest like i've i've seen some really um some really horrible stuff in my life and that some of the well, the worst stuff i've ever seen was all there um yeah 
at the hands of the Australian government. And um, yeah, so it was a real privilege and an honour to be there with those people because they were mm. such incredible. The asylum seekers and refugees are the the most amazing people I've ever met in my life. Um, but then just such a such an injustice that they're being held. It's indefinite detention. So I, I, some of the people that arrived there in 2013 are still there and we're talking now in 2021. Wow. So, you know, it's, um, it's, it's horrific and for the, there's no end in sight for a lot of them. It's hectic. It's horrible. Um, in, in terms of like looking at it as a Christian, like I'm like, it's sinful, yep. it's evil. Um, yeah. I'm guessing that the the quality of life there they were being detained it wasn't like hotel like experience. Yeah, so while I was there, um things have things have changed since like it's slightly better for the people that are there. Um but conditions wise, so Nauru is um yeah, 21 square kilometers tiny little island and as we know Every country in the Pacific was colonized except for Tonga, um, which kind of had its own other thing happen. Um, but while when Nauru was being colonized um, by several different people, they realized that um, it had the highest grade phosphate in the world. Basically, Nauru over millions of years, birds were flying over the ocean and shat on it. And right. then that bird poo over time created like this um, giant island of their feces, yeah. which, so like it's, um, yeah, this am- amazing phosphate. Um, and the really sad history of Nauru is that they mined basically the whole island, the whole middle of the island is mined out. And um, uh, Nauru gained independence in 1967. So then they became the wealthiest country per capita was kind of like Dubai for about 20 years or like, you know, UAE for like 20 years. And then there was a lot of corruption and dodgy investments and the bottom end of the economy fell out overnight. So it's kind of this like riches to rags sort of story as a country. And so now they have all these like schemes going to make money for a while. They're laundering money for Hezbollah and the the Russian mafia and things. And the UN (laughs) stepped in and said like, you're like your prime money maker as as a nation can't be money laundering, um, <laughs> and so soon soon after that they started locking up refugees. So that it, it's the majority of their GDP, which is you know the sad well, thing that. Yeah. Um, but so the the middle of the island is the mine, and it's like completely barren. Like I it's like being in a quarry. Yeah. Um, and in the middle of the mine is the detention. Well, there's two detention centers in the middle of the mine. So when I was there, it was um, people living in canvas tents um, in the middle of a mine. And because it was dug out like a quarry, like there's no air getting in, you're on the equator. So it's like 40 degrees. Um, but the biggest, um, the biggest thing really was like the indefiniteness of it. Yeah. Like at least if someone was like, hey, well, the part of the problem is they, they didn't break any law arriving. Like they didn't follow, in terms of the law, seeking asylum, no matter how you arrived, um, is always your legal right. 
in Australia and the same in New Zealand. And they cut, you can't discriminate on motor transport or anything like that, but they didn't follow the lawful process of applying for a visa, which they wouldn't have got. Um, but they haven't broken a, a law, you know, they haven't yeah. um, committed a crime, but people are like, just give me 10 years, like give me a 10 year prison sentence for arriving by boat, then give me refugee status and resettle me. But at least yeah. tell me how long I'm going to be here. Yeah. You know, and I think the indefinite nature of it, like just being stuck in limbo is, is the thing that really, mm. really gets to people. Um, so I think that's that one of, the worst thing, even if the conditions mm. are great. Um, you know, it's like if someone was in a COVID lockdown in their house and they had a really great house, but people are like, this lockdown could last years and you never know if you're going to be able to leave your house again. It's like, well, the standard of living in the house at a certain point, like, isn't even a part it's of the not equation the issue, of whether yeah. this is good or not. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, so that the standard of living was really bad. And I think it's gotten better over time. Like a lot of people actually can are free to roam around the Island now and live in, um, in small houses on the Island, but um, they're still indefinitely detained essentially. Mm. So um, yeah, that's the thing that's really, really hard. So what, what gave you hope while you were there? I, the people, the people themselves, which is so incredible. Um, like people are made in the image of God. And I think when you are put in a place where life is really tough for you, the image of God often shines its brightest, I think. Mm. And so, for me there, it was just like seeing, um, seeing the image of God in these people, um, and seeing their beauty and their resilience. Um, yeah. So I, I had a job where I was supposed to do, um, a whole load of work, um, to essentially try make life a lot less hard for these people, mm. which was this weird paradox that the Salvation Army were employed by the Australian government to provide welfare services um, for people in detention, but the detention was the thing that was making them unwell. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, so it's yeah. like, it was just a bit of a weird, it's like being a doctor at a hospital where the hospital makes people sick. Yeah. You know, it was just yeah. like a bit of a weird. Um, so I realized real early on, literally in my first few weeks, nothing I do in my job is going to help. But I'm in a place that is stripping people of their dignity and I can spend all my day doing everything I can to at least give a little bit of it back. So I mm. basically dedicated myself to drinking cups of tea and playing games of chess. Like that was, um, that was my day. I would, I'd try get all my like tasks done for my job by about 10 AM. And then I knew I could spend, um, mm. from 10 to I finished at six, um, I could spend, you know, the next eight hours just having cups of tea, you know, mourning with those who mourn. Yeah. When things were good, rejoicing with those who are rejoicing, learning little bits of their language, yeah. uh, learning little bits about their culture, all those sorts of things. And like, 
I've never played that much chess in my life. Like we played yeah. a lot of chess. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I think that was the thing that kept me there for that amount of time was knowing that the job itself wasn't necessarily ha- helping, but in a system that was stripping people of their dignity, I could do the little bit that I could to bring um, some dignity in that moment, which to me is a kingdom thing. You know, it's that like down to earth, you know, bringing the kingdom down to earth in a situation like that. How can yeah. I bring at least a little bit of the kingdom? Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's that's what gave me hope. I remember there was there was a thing around the um, Pacific leaders all gathering in Nauru, and mm. um, was that when you were there mm. still, or had you come back by then? Yeah, so that was a fun. To me, that was fun, a fun time. So, in a weird way, as someone that had yep. been, so I was in Nauru, twenty twelve to twenty fourteen, and I think that would have been. 2018 right so at that point like it was a tragedy for me looking at it um because i worked with a lot of towards the end of my time there i worked with a lot of teenage boys that had arrived by themselves as teenagers without a parent or a guardian so they were you know unaccompanied minors stuck there but the real tragedy for me in that 2018 time is that none of them were children anymore you know they had all lost their um the, you know they're all early 20s and yeah. they'd, they'd essentially lost the rest of their childhood to that place yeah. um but um yeah there was a bit of a so i was working for world vision at the time and there was about to be a push by world vision australia on getting all the kids off nauru so at the time there was 119 children so 100 that being people under 18 119 yeah. people under 18 including um Teenagers, but also including babies that had been born there. Mm. Um, so they knew nothing but detention. And um, so uh, World Vision Australia got in touch with World Vision New Zealand and said, hey, we just wanted to let you know this campaign's happening if you wanted to be a part of it, you know, if there's anything you wanted to do. And um, so the advocacy manager got in touch with me because I was there, you know, and he's like, yeah. hey, is there anything you thought we could do? And I, I happened to go to church with someone that was involved with the Pacific Islands Forum. So every year, all of the leaders of the Pacific come together on, you know, one of the um, Pacific Islands and talk, including Australia and New Zealand, and talk about what's happening in the region, how we can support each other, all sorts of different things. But um, this year, it was being hosted on in, in Nauru. So this. It was kind of in my mind early on that this thing was going to happen in Nauru. So it was already bubbling Mm. away. And then World Vision Australia were like, hey, is there anything you want to do? And we had a big hunch that Jacinda Ardern would be going. And so we thought, okay, well, if the call from World Vision Australia is to get all of the kids off Nauru and Australia saying we won't take them, then let's get Jacinda Ardern to go to Nauru and say we'll take them. You know, let's. Yeah. She's going to be there, um, and so, uh, so we reached out to her, um, called her office, sent some letters, um, didn't hear anything, and so then we thought, okay, well then let's let's make a push. So two weeks out from the forum, we um, gathered a whole load of people around the country. We asked them all to gather ten friends. We had um, so another part of the history is. People were sent to Nauru 
a long time ago, sort of like a lot earlier. Um, I think it was around 2008. And there were people that had gone to Nauru as children that Helen Clark said, no, we'll take them. Yeah. So uh, there's a lot of Kiwis that arrived on what's called the Tampa boat. That's right that have gr- grown into sort of proud Kiwis. So we had um, a guy, Abbas Nazari, who was one of one of those guys say, you know, you've, we've done this before. We did it for me. I'm now a proud Kiwi. Now's our time. We need to do this again, Jacinda Ardern, while you're there. So we put this video up and um, we'd organized in the background. So we'd organized 30 people that had 10 friends to share the video straight away. Um, so the video went up on a Sunday night and it got 300 shares within the first minute. And then that sort of, we sort of almost tried to reverse engineer a viral video. Um, And then after that, I'd been having coffee with a friend and who does marketing and we're talking about the campaign and we're like, what, what could we do? And I think it was him or, or I, or it was just, you know, when something comes up in conversation and you're like, this is the idea, you're, you're kind of that mm-hmm. ping pong back and forth and you land on something and you're like, this is it. And we're like, you know how businesses embed their Facebook messenger box on their website where it's like, you know, yep. send us a message on their website directly through messenger. Mm-hmm. We're like, we reckon we could embed Jacinda Ardern's Facebook messenger onto our own website. Like we yeah. just we just like Googled the code and we're like, you can do that. You can just embed anyone's messenger on your Facebook, on your, on your website. So we basically led everyone from the video to our website with a whole bunch of information, asked them to message Jacinda. And so that happened Sunday night. And then by about midday, she called us up and she was like, well, her office called us up and said, hey, call off the dogs, essentially. You know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Like let's let's meet in two days, and um, what happened next I think was the best is there was a whole load of articles, and so Jacinda Ardern had was having this press conference um, to talk about. At that point, she was saying um, the big news of the day from her was that she that they were freezing the MPs' wages, uh, that there wouldn't be increases yep. for the next um, however long, and so people then went to question and answer. And people started asking, hey, World Vision is saying that there are 119 children in detention and that you're going to be going over there. Um, we want to know whether you're going to answer their call about will New Zealand bring these kids from Nauru? And then one question was, will you visit the refugee detention centres while you're there? And she said, I don't, I don't know if I'll be able to. And they had a follow-up question saying is it that you won't be able to or that you're not allowed to? And she said, you know, as the leader of New Zealand, I have the hope and expectation that I would be able to visit the detention centres. And one of the really crazy things at this point, which uh, to me at the time, this was one of the biggest wins, was Jacinda Ardern was saying, I think that, you know, I have the expectation that I would be able to visit. And it got announced a few days later, not even announced, it got leaked to the media a few days later that they had completely dismantled what was left of the the detention center. Um, So people were at that point still living in these tents Mm. um, and they were having severe health problems from, um, from mold in them. They moved from having um, canvas tents to the the sort of that white plasticky material that you have at like an Easter camp 
um, big big tent or oh, like you yep. know like the like parachute you know those sorts yep. of festival sort of um, big marquee and so they just got super moldy and people were getting like really really sick and um, so I think with the spotlight on Nauru and the potential of Jacinda Ardern visiting even the thought of it they dismantled what was left of those tents they moved them completely out of sight and they moved everyone else that was there into the community to sort of live um, mm. with a bit more freedom. So to me, I was like, I spent every day in that oppressive place and to see us um, sort of rally around and mm. as a result have the detention center dismantled was really, really cool. Um, and yeah. the end result of the campaign, which took a while is um, all 119 children got removed from the country. So all of them with their families um, are now yeah. in Australia. They still face a lot of uh, legal battles and challenges and there's yeah. still the indefiniteness of not knowing if they can stay in Australia, yeah. but um, it's such a huge step forward. So, um, yeah, it was that was um, it was amazing to be a part of, to come full mm. circle from having been there um, and it was really powerful for me to be able to campaign for kids that I knew, knew by name, you know, that I yeah. had spent so much time with and um, like, it wasn't a faceless um, campaign for me, you know, it was, um, it was really personal. And so um, to see the fallout of it gave me great joy, you know, yeah. like that's where, you know, you asked a question that, you know, um, that, that week where the campaign was in full swing, there was whole all sorts of things. There was a New Zealand reporter that um, reporters were allowed on Nauru for the first time in like five years. So the, the whole, the country, it was a $10,000 visa to apply to go as a reporter. And if it was non-refundable, even if you were denied and they just denied everyone, denied, denied, denied. So no reporters, people are like, like, like the Guardian was spending, you know, like, over you know a hundred thousand dollars to try get reporters there just always denied the only time they ever let reporters were like far right-wing reporters from australia every once in a while just to say yeah we let reporters in um with you know people that were going to tow the yeah. party line and so um for the first time in years reporters were going for the for the pacific islands forum and they signed something to say that they would never leave essentially the press bus they wouldn't talk to any refugees they wouldn't talk to anyone about anything refugee related, all this stuff. And there was this New Zealand reporter um, who was like, who'd already been arrested in Fiji another time for something else. She's been reporting on what's happening in the Pacific Islands for a long time. And she was like, I want to get away. So we actually behind the scenes teed her up with refugees to meet up with. And she escaped um, secretly from all of the press and made her way around the island and interviewed a whole bunch of refugees wow. and ended up getting arrested by the Nauruan police. So that became like um, the whole first half hour of One News was dedicated to their um, reporter who was locked up. And they she managed to, they confiscated heaps of the footage, but she had already, she knew it was going to happen. So she had been sending it off as they yep. went. So they already had a lot of the footage. And to me as this like, punk <laughs> that's like been there um that doesn't want to just stick it to the system for the sake of it but is yeah. like there's there's a there's a, a huge injustice happening right now going this reporter that we had just 
um, helped have you know get have these interviews happen just gave me great joy you know like it was in this weird weird way yeah um like literally we received whatsapp messages from the refugees saying hey that reporter was just arrested um so one news didn't even know like we we were calling one news like hey do you know do you know that your um reporter's just been arrested um so yeah it was just a crazy crazy time it was one of the best weeks of my life to be honest um just coming full circle that's really cool too about how the um like you talked earlier about the the um diy kind of nature of the music that you're listening to and the you know that inspired you and Mm. and and to go you know hey we could reverse engineer a a viral video um you know yeah just let's just do it and actually yeah. to have that not just be something that goes viral and then you get famous from it, but something that mm. really makes a difference in the world, you know, that must be just so heartening Yeah. to go, you know, well, actually I'm just an ordinary guy doing ordinary stuff, but it made a difference. Yeah. Yeah. How did you then go from like you, you're working for world vision. You're now over in Australia mm. in, in the outbacks. Yeah. How how did that transition happen? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, after so I've been working for World Vision New Zealand, and then um, I got offered uh, to go work for World Vision Jordan. So I was in Jordan um, for like they they're like we need someone for six months who can do work with young people. Or so it's yeah. it was working with local staff to work with young people, but youth programming that was all about advocacy. And yeah, cool. so people are like, oh, well, James is like youth work and advocacy. Yeah. So yeah, I was there for um, six months with World, with World Vision. It was always just going to be a six month contract. And at the end, so my wife joined up me over there and we both, because she was in Nauru together. So we were both already had like started learning Arabic. We had, you know, we had a real passion for the region. So a part of us going there for that six months was going, oh, maybe we'll be here for a while. We're not sure, but maybe. So that six months ended with uh, World Vision and I was sort of, both of us were sort of um, applying for a few like jobs and stuff here or there, but mostly just trying to find our place yeah. in Jordan and hanging out with people and um, a bit of travel um, as well from there. And we got offered these jobs in the outback in a remote Aboriginal community um, called Belgo from a friend that we had lived with in Wellington who had become a teacher and moved there and um, to teach. And two youth work jobs are coming up and they'd wanted people that were experienced because it was the first time they'd had youth workers. So they needed people that could really sort of, I guess, set the foundation for something. And they wanted a male and a female. So my friend was like, I know the people. And initially we said no. And then one day my wife made me a cup of tea and said, I think I'll never regret going to Belgo, but I might regret not going. Mm-hmm. And in that moment it was like, okay, well, we're, we're going to do it. Like this is, um, we've made most of our major life decisions around just like a feeling in our gut, which yeah. it could be the Holy spirit or it could just be the cup of tea. I'm not sure, you know, but yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, sometimes that's the same thing. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, we just were like, yeah, let's 
let's do it. And so my wife found out probably would have been nine years ago or something. So when I first met her, she said, oh, she's quite fair skinned, but she said, oh, my brother's a bit darker than me because we're part Spanish. And right. my granddad's really dark because um, we're part Spanish. And then, so her granddad was like one of 11, grew up in a foster home, doesn't really, you know, grew up disconnected mm. from all his family. Um, and it makes complete sense now. I, I, we don't know how he didn't see it or whether he knew it and just didn't want to say it. But one of his cousins found him and was going through the family tree, going through the family tree, mm. f- found him. Um, in his sort of late seventies, and said, "You know, well, this is the Aboriginal side of the family," and it was like, "What do you mean Aboriginal? I'm part Spanish." Wow. They told me I was Spanish in the foster home. Wow! And yeah, it was. Um, so for for the family at first, it was like, "Oh, well, that's interesting." But I think the more that it sat with Jenna, the more it was like, "Actually, this is this is the sad history of our country in Australia mm. that." they literally bred it out of people. And yeah. so so they said once someone, if their mum was half or their dad was half, after that they could be taken and raised European and, mm. you know, completely removed from culture, from family, from... Mm. So, yeah, there was, there's that that we've sat with the last little while and we haven't mm. been... And this is our first time living in Australia in eight years. And so, yeah, it was that was really the driver for us was a chance yeah. for for us to connect with with that side of her and um and really reconcile our relationship with australia to be honest after being in nauru both of us were like f australia yeah like yeah. why would we you know looking to um to start a family and stuff like that it's like why would we raise them in Australia when we could raise them yeah. in Kohanga in New Zealand, you know, like mm. it's, it, it was just yeah. like, there's like, it, it seemed like the two countries were worlds apart. Mm. And um, so it's just been really healing for us to be here to, cool. to reconcile our relationship with Australia as a couple, as a family and um, for her to sort of dig deeper into, to who she is, that, that deep part of her that, um, you know, I think, um, Indigenous peoples and Aboriginal people have a God-given purpose to care for their country. I think you know it's a, mm. there's something that exists within their wairua, within their spirit that I think was just sitting there in Jenna, but mm. hasn't. You know, a piece of her her spirit that couldn't find rest. Yeah, and I think um, for the first time we're sort of moving towards finding that. So um, yeah, it's been really healing to be here. Cool. That's awesome. And you get to do some fun things like going hunting with the, the chief. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's pretty crazy. We're like, we're really, really remote. Um, so the closest McDonald's is a nine hour drive. The closest barber's shop like is like a seven hour drive. And um, the closest sealed road is like three and a half hours away. So like we're, we're quite remote. Wow. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of hunting. There's a lot of wild animals. Um, there's thousands of wild horses. Um, so it's pretty cool to just drive around in a four wheel drive in the desert and chase wild horses and catch the odd one. People take them home. And I don't know. It's just like, it's literally 
another world out here. So, yeah. um, yeah, it's a real privilege to be here and a whole lot of fun. Um, yeah. And a lot of that fun has been the healing stuff. Oh, man, I, there's so much we could keep talking about, but unfortunately we've come to the end of the time. Mm. I guess just, just to finish off, looking back at all of that, what are you most grateful for about this journey that you've been on with the the youth work, the justice work, the advocacy? Um, what is it that, that when you look back on it, you go, man, I'm really stoked about this? Yeah, one thing that I'm really grateful for is looking at, you know, in um, the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all else will be added to you. Um, you know, like don't the whole, you know, don't care for the birds, all that stuff. And then I heard someone say, you know, that the Greek word for righteousness there mm. actually could be translated justice. justice as well. And to me, that just made total sense. And so essentially that's what we've lived by is, you know, seek first the kingdom and his justice and and everything else will be added to you. Everything you need will be provided. Um, and we've never once been in need, but we've mm. always prioritized justice. Yeah. And you know, in, in the in the big and the small decisions we make. So um, I think that's the thing I'm the most grateful for is knowing that essentially in losing my life, I'll find it, you know, and yeah, cool. um, that I'm, I'm just like, oh, I, like Jesus was for real. You know, yeah. that that's yeah. the sort of thing that I'm like the most grateful for. I'm like, yeah. this isn't just fluff. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And I love how right through your story, uh, you just highlighted again and again the like there's the macro level stuff, the big stuff that mm. actually can change with a whole lot of people getting together and, and having a voice in that. Uh, and then there's the micro stuff of what can I do today? hundred percent. You know what? I can go and have a cup of tea. I can play chess with someone. I can give them the dignity of treating them as a human. Yeah. And so often I think we don't do the, like the big thing seems out of reach. Mm. So we don't even contemplate the little thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but to do the little thing and then know that actually lots of little things contribute to a big thing mm. is really encouraging. Oh, thanks so much for your time. Uh, really appreciate that. Uh, appreciate you sharing your stories and your heart for people. And um, yeah, thanks for what you're doing to help to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. Yeah, cheers. All good. Glad to be a part of it. Hello. In a system that was stripping people of their dignity, I could do the little bit that I could to bring some dignity in that moment. You know, it's people like James who uh, inspired me to start this podcast. He gets it. He can't change the whole world, but he can help to change the world for someone. He can use his life and his skills to make a difference for those who have had their dignity taken from them, who have had their hopes stolen from them. I'm sure James would be the first to agree that we don't all have to go to Nauru to do this. We can simply ask ourselves what opportunities are there in the spaces we occupy to love others? How can who we are and what we have make a difference in the lives of those around us? So James, here is a blessing for you. May the rhythms of your life keep pounding to the beat of justice, just like the music that inspired your journey. 
May you know the kindness and generosity of others in your life as you continue to live a life of kindness and generosity towards others. As you spend time with people on the margins, may you find yourself at home, knowing that you are exactly where you're meant to be. As you and Jenna continue to work and live in ways that give out to others, may you also receive, receiving faith, hope and love, that you can continue to serve as you do, and that your relationship with one another and your future together would flourish. And may you both continue to find healing from that which you have seen, experienced and felt. And lastly, may you continue to see the small things that you do make a difference in people's lives and do damage to the systems that oppress them. And in those moments of change, may you again know great joy. Thanks to Strawn for the music and Rangi for the karakia. Thanks for joining me on this episode. Uh, join me next time when I talk to Dietrich Sorkai about youth work, poetry, child advocacy and culture. Until then, me inoi tato. E tō mātou matua i te rangi Kia tapu tō ingoa Kia tau mai tō rangatira tanga Kia mea te tau e pai ai ki runga ki te whenua Kia rite anō ki tō te rangi Humai kia mātou ai nei E taroma mātou mō tēnei rā Mūro mātou hara Me mātou hoki e muru nei I o te hunga E harana kia mātou Aua hoki mātou e kawea Kia whakawaia E ngari whakorangia mātou I te kino Mūro mātou hara